Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today, no radical departure there. We'll hear first from Christian Parenti, who'll tell us how it's technically feasible to suck carbon out of the air, turn it into rock, and maybe head off total climate disaster. And then the anthropologist Kareem Rabi will talk about how real estate development has supplanted state development as the focus of the Palestinian project. If we needed further proof that the climate crisis should no longer be spoken of in the future tense, this summer is providing plenty. We have to do something, and fast, to avoid civilizational collapse and possible mass extinction. One underappreciated possibility, carbon dioxide removal. Here with more is Christian Pranti, a writer and political economist who teaches at John Jay College in Manhattan. He was on this show recently to talk about his book, Radical Hamilton. Christian has an essay on the topic of carbon removal in a collection called Has It Come to This? Edited by J.P. Sapinski, Holly Jean Buck, and Andreas Malm, published by Rutgers University Press. Christian Pranti. Okay, so there are really giant vacuum cleaners that can suck the carbon dioxide out of the air? There are, yes. There is technology to strip CO2 out of the atmosphere. This technology exists. It's not particularly expensive. And the problem with it, it doesn't use enormous amounts of energy. It does use energy. The basics of this technology has been used in spacecraft and that kind of thing. Stripping CO2 out of the atmosphere has been the question of storage. What do you do with it? Turn it into a critical gas, inject it into the ground, but then it can leak out and that defeats the whole purpose. And if it leaks out into, you know, enclosed spaces, it's, it can kill people. It's an odorless, um, invisible gas that can suffocate you. So there's actually been a, you know, glimmers of a solution to that problem. In Iceland, some scientists mixed CO2 with a sulfuric acid. They mix the CO2 into water with, with this acid and force it down into basalt rock formations. And when they did this experiment, they thought that what they were trying to do was turn it into a solid rock. And they thought that maybe, you know, after 10 or 20 or 30 years, they would see results. But in fact, within 18 months, the CO2 was turning into a kind of soft, chalky limestone rock it was happening. It was solidifying so quickly that they, the problem they ran into was that the, the holes they had drilled into these rock formations were clogging up. So there's actually a way to turn the CO2 gas into a rock. In Oman, there are rocks that strip CO2 from the atmosphere with such velocity that they form that the CO2 actually forms a kind of ice-like rock over pools of standing water. And if you break this thin layer of rock, it reforms within a couple of days, much like ice would. So this is a naturally occurring process. And part of what this Icelandic experiment has discovered is that you can turn CO2 gas into rock fairly quickly and fairly cheaply. The rock that it interacts with is basalt rock, and that is the most common rock in the world. A lot of it uh, is deep, and a lot of it is under the ocean, but there's no shortage of basalt rock formations into which CO2 could be forced. How does this compare with other technical mitigation schemes like launching reflective particles in the atmosphere? 
Well, it's different in that it's about taking pollution out of the atmosphere rather than putting new things into the atmosphere, i.e. polluting the atmosphere. So it's important to draw a distinction between geoengineering in the form of solar radiation management, that is like mimicking volcanoes and spewing sulfates into the atmosphere so that they'll reflect sunlight back. That's, That's a kind of geoengineering that has a lot of traction and is by all accounts highly dangerous. We don't really know what the effects of this would be. We do know that chances are that the sulfate particles will come out of the atmosphere as acid rain and do damage on the ground. So carbon capture, direct air carbon capture is fundamentally different in that it's about removing pollution from the atmosphere, not adding pollution to the atmosphere. It's like other techno fixes in that it is big technology and environmentalists don't like big technology. And there's a real blind spot around that. Let's talk about that a bit. Why do they not like these? I mean, this seems like something we could do conceivably in a fairly short period of time as these things go. Um, Why not do it? Well, I mean, there are good reasons to fear big technology, right? I mean, lots of uh, environmental problems are the result of technology run amok from chemical pollution to carbon uh, pollution in the atmosphere. I mean, this is all rooted in Promethean technology has gone awry. So it's not like the classic environmental fear of technology is baseless, but I think it goes too far. Solar panels are a technology. Wind turbines are technology. We have to realize that there is no way out of the climate crisis without a role for technology. And unfortunately, in this day and age of social media uh, dominating how we think slogans become slogans stand in for actual ideas. And so a slogan, no techno fix, which meant you have to deal with the social relations of, of capitalism. You can't continue on with a world economy organized the way it is and think that it's going to be sustainable. You can't just add new technology to these existing social relations and think things are going to be okay. That's the idea that underlines the the phrase no techno fix will unfortunately in the minds of people who who think only through memes and tweets no techno fix morphs into technology is not part of the solution and that's simply idiotic and i mean it really it misunderstands our whole history as a species i mean we are a species that has fundamentally produced itself through technology the primary technology being fire i mean like Homo sapiens literally, as a a form, emerged through this dialectical relationship with the use of fire. Our our GI tracts shrink because we cook our food. Our brains get big because we cook our food and we have more uh, energy available to us. You know, we, we lose our hair compared to our closest relatives and move into all sorts of climates because of our relationship to fire. And we've managed countless landscapes through fire. Basically, all human groups, other than a few Inuit groups in the far north, we now realize have regularly burned their environment to increase the fecundity of the environment. So, like, as a species, like, we are bound up with technology, right? Fire is just one of it. And then you get into tools, agriculture. Uh, I'm using technology in a broad sense, you know, uh, the, the taming of animals, right? I mean, dogs and human beings have had a relationship that goes back they think like possibly like 60,000 years. Dogs have definitely been in existence and tamed for at least 20,000, but there were attempts 
earlier than that. I mean, like that's shaped how early Homo sapiens hunted. So, I mean, the idea that we as a species aren't totally bound up with technologies is just wrong. So we've got to take responsibility for that and then change the, the question to like what kinds of technologies under what sort of social relations towards what ends, et cetera. But just rejecting technology and rejecting big technology because it's big and because it's technological is adolescent and ridiculous. As a footnote, uh, much of what you were saying is uh, uh, traceable to uh, Engels, right? Yes. Yeah, a lot of this goes back to Frederick Engels. You know, interestingly, Engels is, I would say, widely plagiarized by scientists and environmental writers, maybe without realizing it, but he's very rarely cited, yet a lot of his insights are the basis of uh, whole careers. You know, I mean, it's that the little riff on fire that I just gave you, I mean, that's straight from Engels. Most environmental writers would say, oh, Stephen Pye, he's, he's, you know, he's the guy who writes about fire. It's like, well, yeah, but he's basically just elaborating Engels' insights and has never once, as far as I know, cited Engels. I remember seeing something years ago in the New York Times magazine about like, you know, scientists really discovering the role of like the evolution of the hand and, and the tool and the mind and how language it, it is, uh, you know, emerged out of cooperation and the use of tools and labor. It's like all straight from angles, no attribution whatsoever. I think that has to do with the fact that Soviet science picked up angles and, you know, uh, did read him in a kind of dogmatic, mechanistic way. And then, you know, the Soviet interest, not, they didn't always read him in a dogmatic, mechanistic way, but there was some of that. And so then the association between the Soviets and Engels meant that Engels was a trope of anti-communist um, pillory. And a lot of Marxists in, in the West, in the post-war era, just learned one thing about Engels was that he was dogmatic and it's okay to read Marx, but Engels, you poo-poo as uh, not, not sophisticated enough. I think that's actually wrong. Yes, indeed, I agree. Also this stuff, you know, the emergence of the family, that's some great material too. So back to uh, the carbon capture, uh, how expensive would this technology be? Andres Malm had some calculations in an article that made it seem that, as I recall, it was that an article that he and another author did in historical materialism that was like for 2% of global GDP over 10 years, we could basically draw down the atmospheric carbon from the equivalent of, you know, what it is now 418 parts per million down to 350 parts per million. So, I mean, at one level, that's an enormous amount of money. At another level, that's pretty cheap for uh, saving civilization from itself. But the, the question of costs is, is hard to answer, partly because these things, you know, the costs change, right? That uh, the first Liberty ships built during World War II took like 1,500 hours. And by the end of the war, they were producing them in 400 hours. It's similar numbers available for the, the Model T, right? It's like the, the nature of production is that it becomes cheaper and cheaper as uh, there's more and more capital and more and more skill is being applied. So the current costs of carbon dioxide removal aren't really reflective of what it would cost if there was a full court press by governments around the world to deploy this technology at a mass scale. 
And whenever you talk about these costs, the, the fact is that uh, doing nothing is even more costly. Yeah, that costs everything. And it's important to remember that this problem of carbon dioxide pollution isn't a linear one. Uh, I mean, the rate at which we are emitting carbon dioxide is accelerating rapidly. Most of the carbon dioxide pollution in the atmosphere has been emitted in the last 30 years, right? I mean, so the rate of, of increase of this problem is, is itself accelerating. And it's important to note that carbon, direct air carbon capture in and of itself isn't going to make civilization sustainable. There has to be uh, a total elimination of fossil fuel technologies, right? I mean, we've got to completely revolutionize our energy system as a global economy. And to some extent that's happening. But the point I'm trying to make is that neither will that alone, getting off of fossil fuels, be sufficient because we are already into the danger zone. We're already at 418 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. Under the best case scenario, that's not going to be the peak. There's going to be more emissions. The process of building out a renewable energy sector is going to, at least at first, involve lots of carbon emissions. So we've got to be serious about the question of drawdown. And it's not sufficient, as George Monbiot would argue, to do natural carbon renewal uh, removal. Sorry, um, you know, people have done crunch the numbers. It's like if we were to have, you know, try to draw down all of the carbon we need to from the atmosphere through planting forests, it would be like, you know, we'd need something around the, the same as uh, all cropland devoted to that, right? We've messed up the atmosphere to the point where we have to use technology to draw down carbon. We cannot simply rely on natural processes, photosynthesis. And also planting trees only works until the forests are uh, climaxed and then the rate of their drawdown uh, decreases. There's also the problem that if you were to plant, you know, cover the world in, in trees while the climate system is breaking down, there's no guarantee at all that those forests won't themselves become victim to that breakdown and quickly collapse and become net emitters. So I, I think we do need to look at this technology. Now, the, the problem with the current discourse around this technology is that it's uh, its champions, because most environmentalists have a phobia around technology, except for the ones who, the macho ones who love nukes to the point where they're frequently just outright lying about, you know, the cost of nukes, et cetera. Most other greens hate technology. So then the only people who are really into carbon capture uh, technology are these silly free marketeers who think that or at least say that it's going to be brought to scale by, you know, finding uses for the CO2 that's stripped from the atmosphere. They do stuff like sell all of this CO2 to soda makers or. <laughs> that's a lot of soda. It's a lot of soda. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, that you, you consume the soda and you belch out the uh, CO2 and it, and it hasn't been sequestered. I'm speaking with the political economist, Christian Parenti. Well, that anticipates my next question. Can the market do this? Yeah, absolutely not. It has to be treated like a public utility. I mean, the same way that roads ultimately have been shown not to really be deliverable by the market. It's not that there, there's never been a role uh, or successful attempts by, uh, by private capital to build transportation infrastructure. But the, the real history is, at least in this country, and, and you know, it's the same in most countries, is that like private roads just 
don't work. They're not profitable enough. They never really scale up. And so transportation infrastructure is something that modern civilization and capitalism needs, but capital can't provide for itself. And so the public sector does it. And it's like, that's what direct air carbon capture is, is like. Uh, I mean, there are ongoing private experiments and they're, you know, perhaps to be very charitable, you know, they're, they're prototyping the technology, they're doing certain kind of experimental pioneering work, but there's no sign at all that they can, in fact, scale it up at the rate necessary. And I, and I think that that has to just be done through public investment in the name of security, in the name of saving civilization from an impending crisis. In your paper, you cite uh, the work of our mutual friend, Josh Mason, uh, on the wartime economy. Um, what, uh, what do we learn from the World War II experience that we could apply to saving civilization from climate crisis? Part of what we learned from that, part of one of Josh's important points is that to some extent, World War II paid for itself, that all of the investment into the military production, it wasn't just, you know, money that was lost. It generates income that's then taxed that then goes back into the process of paying for the economic expansion. So that's an important element in thinking about the cost of CDR. So it's like, well, what would the cost of this be? It's like, well, the cost, meaning the investment, is also going to produce income and savings that can then be reinvested. So there, there is a, a history in these large government programs, unfortunately, usually around war, of a positive cycle, of a virtuous cycle in which the investments aren't just lost, but like generate income that then generates savings and tax income that can be redeployed for more investment and so on and so forth. But also, uh, it was a, a brief experience of a quasi-planned economy in the United States. Yes, right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the central thing, which is that this did not happen on its own. It, it required government intervention. And the more drastic the transformation in the industrial base, the more necessary government planning is to the whole endeavor. And, and that's very much the situation we're facing with the climate crisis. The war model is you know, not irrelevant to this. I mean, they are just going to require an entire civilizational mobilization to meet a mortal threat. Yeah, it's the moral equivalent of war, as uh, as William James put it in in, in uh, an essay that is now seen as sort of you know uh, laying the groundwork for national service programs. He was reflecting on on the sort of nostalgia for the Civil War, and so what we need is the moral equivalent of war. You know, some, something that brings us together as a society and motivates sacrifice and solidarity and coordination cooperation that doesn't involve you know burning down cities and killing people and that's very much what the climate crisis offers or demands i mean it has to be we have to see it as the moral equivalent of war and there is an element of destruction it's like we we have to euthanize the fossil fuel industry and we have to all pitch in now, you said uh, that environmentalists don't really advocate this technology very much, not many of them, except maybe some loopy free market types. Is that really the extent of the support for this? There's no broader uh, support among anybody would consider an environmentalist? Not that I'm aware of. Maybe that's been changing. I mean, I mean, there's a few writers. There, I mean, the, the essay, uh, Left Defensive Carbon Dioxide Removal, is in a book 
uh, edited by Holly Buck and Andre Malm. So, I mean, they're environmentalist intellectuals who are trying to think about this. But I don't think that environmental activists are demanding this uh, other than the free market fantasists. I may be wrong about that. There might be stuff going on in Europe. There might be stuff changing right now. Um, you know, Ryan Grimm did a segment on rising about this and apparently got a lot of attention. I mean, I think that if people are honest with themselves, you realize that, okay, we can't stabilize the atmosphere without this technology. And a key element in all of this, I think, is is cynicism, right? There's a kind of cynicism that sets in in environmentalism, where the whole task becomes a kind of like righteous death watch and sort of just doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing, but not being realistic about saving the whole project of civilization. That's my impression. I, I, and let's uh, conclude with a bit of a Marxist coda. Um, you, you write about uh, the contradictions between the forces and relations of production. Uh, could you talk about that in general and then how it applies in this case? Yeah. You know, we have this technology, direct air carbon capture, and the ability to store it and turn it into a rock. But the social relations, so those are like those are that technology is part of the forces of production. But the the relations of production under capitalism, where uh, you know investment happens so as to make money and to return a profit doesn't allow for the scaling up of this because there is no way to make a profit from deploying this technology around the edges. Okay. There's this or that project that's, you know, providing CO2 to greenhouses and here or there, but none of this, none of these experiments are able to scale up because there simply isn't a market for the product of this technology. The product of this technology is CO2 gas or this kind of um, soft limestone rock produced by it. And there isn't a market for that. And therefore, I mean, that means capitalism, if it can't sell the products of this technology into competitive markets, if it can't commodify the, the product of this technology, then it can't realize profits on its investment and it therefore can't make more investments and it can't scale up. And so that's what we're bumping up against. And that's an example of the contradiction between the forces of production, which have tremendous potential, you know, and the relations of production, which just can't seem to, which just because of the tyranny of the profit motive can't reach the scale necessary. And so that means this has to be handled under a different logic and deployed as a public utility. And this also gets into the question of sort of like, what is capitalism? I, I, I discussed Polanyi in the piece, which is I, some Marxists sort of you know, dismiss him as a sort of gateway drug to liberalism. But um, I think it's important to sort of think about like you got capital, the social relation of capital, private ownership of the means of production, investment purchasing of labor powers, commodity, and mixing the means of production together to produce commodities for sale in a private market to realize more money, produce surplus value, and, and realize profit on the investment so as to start the whole cycle again. That's capital, the social relation. You've got capitalism, the society that is dominated by this logic, but not entirely dominated by it because uh, there's always an outside of that process. And if you look at capitalism, there's always 
pre-capitalist and non-capitalist institutions and traditions and elements in the societies, like care work, right? I mean, not everything in a capitalist society is governed by the logic of capital, the social relation of capital. Not everything is fully subsumed by the logic of capital. Not everything has a price tag on it. Uh, so you have care work, for example, the, the reproduction of labor power, right? The reproduction, the production of people, care work. Most of that is done outside of the logic of capital. Most of it is done outside of, uh, uh, is not governed by the social relation capital. It's done the old fashioned way. Parents raise their children and love them and educate them, not because they're going to get paid back, but just because that's what people have always done under all social systems. And similarly, the, the public sector is one of these outsides that's bound up with the logic of capital, but you know, is constantly bailing the capitalist system out. The logic of capital as a social relation, when it has enough power, leads ultimately to bubbles and crashes and calamity that powerful states inevitably have to uh, intervene in these crises and socialize the costs and relaunch capitalist political economy on the basis of, you know, a kind of bastardized socialism. So there's always an outside to capital. And what, what we need to do is sort of like realize that capitalism is always a mixed economy. And there are these large sectors of economic activity that are not governed by the profit motive. And part of what the struggle generally as socialists and Marxists is, I think, is to kind of push that barrier forward, right? To decommodify more and more of life. And what the climate crisis involves, particularly around the question of CDR technology, is a realization that, that this, has, this cannot be commodified. It has to be deployed as a use value. It has to be deployed as a social good, uh, regardless of its profitability. And then, I mean, the other divisions you get into this, like you've got capital as a social relation, capitalism, the system, you've got the capitalist class, which you write very well about. And then you have the capitalist state. Sometimes I think on the left, all of this stuff gets blurred together and lumped together under capitalism as if it's a single coherent thing. I guess I'm encouraging leftists to try and disaggregate the elements that are capitalism. You've got the capitalist class. They're the enemy that we have to struggle against. You've got the capitalist state. It's an arena of struggle. The capitalist class mostly controls it, but they don't control all of it. Other classes through class struggle have purchase within that institution. You've got the logic of capital. And you know this whole ensemble is capitalist society. And capitalist society is made up of all sorts of other non-capitalist, pre-capitalist institutions like care, the family, faith, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, Christian Parenti, author of A Left Defense of Carbon Dioxide Removal in a collection called Has It Come to This, published by Rutgers University Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Well, um... 
of a song of radioactivitate by Kraftwerk, speaking of nuclear power. Next, how can real estate development harmonize with a project of national development? A few weeks ago, we heard from Khalid Harub on Hamas and its Gaza-based resistance to Israeli power, and the political contrast between it and the discredited Palestinian Authority. Now a view from the West Bank, where the PA is more prominent and life is somewhat less miserable than Gaza. Rawabi is a planned new town about six miles north of Ramallah, the major city on the occupied West Bank. Its mastermind is a Palestinian businessman, Bashar Masri. My next guest, Kareem Rabi, is just out with a book on the city and what it means for the Palestinian National Project. What if Palestinians will never be able to realize a conventional nation-state? Could large-scale real estate development, funded by a mix of international aid and investment from sovereign wealth funds, serve as some sort of neoliberal substitute? Kareem Rabi's book is called Palestine is Throwing a Party in the Whole World's Invited. Here's Kareem Rabi, who is about to start teaching anthropology at the University of Illinois, Chicago. What is Rawabi? Rawabi is a massive real estate development project about nine kilometers north of Ramallah, funded by now about a billion dollars coming from Palestinian capitalists and the sovereign wealth fund of Qatar. Ultimately, it's supposed to house about 40,000 so-called middle-class Palestinians. What is the story of origin? It seems rather murky where this all came from. The origins are kind of murky. I mean, there are a couple of uh, narratives about it. I think the, the place to start is with the head of the firm, who's a guy called Bashar Masri, who's a, a Palestinian capitalist who made his fortune in North Africa and, and the U.S. as part of the aid industry in Palestine. And so the way that it's told, it's really like his project, his baby. He's the main guy. Everything sort of runs through him. He's the face of, of the project. Once you dig down a little bit, it sort of emerges as a part of a suite of changes in Palestine to governance, to the way that aid is funneled into the West Bank through changes in land tenure and so on. So what I do in the book is I talk about how it fits into and, and really how it's a place to see changes to political organization and economic organization in Palestine through the, the so-called state building project in the West Bank. Just uh, parenthetically, you said Palestinian capitalists. How big a class is that? How powerful are they? How rich are they? And what's their political influence? Where's their money come from? How powerful are they? I think they're powerful. It's interesting in Palestine because a lot of them sort of uh, toggle back and forth between the PA, the aid industry, and you know whatever sort of, sort of capitalist projects they have. I mean, the most famous one is a guy called Munib al-Masri, who is a distant relative of Bashar's. He made his fortune in construction. There is a capitalist class in Palestine who have, I think, significant sort of uh, p- political authority in the PA, especially as far as the state building project is concerned, which is really about combining the, the economic logics and political logics there for stabilization in the West Bank. And the money comes from what, like construction? There's not a whole lot of manufacturing going on in the Palestinian territories, is there? No, there's not. There used to be. The people who have money there tend to be engaged in in stuff like construction or older, richer families who made their money sort of also in in kind of an outward-looking economic practice. There's capital that sort of stayed in Palestine. There's returnee capital after Oslo. This class of people, like like Masri himself, are sort of engaged in stuff like real estate and construction and things that, that can exist in a Palestine that's circumscribed and truncated. You're, you're right that there's not much uh, manufacturing in Palestine, and that's by design. That's, that's how the occupation works. And so what happens is, as they're trying to, to create sort of an economic basis for a state, whatever that means to them, 
in Palestine, they start to do the things that they, they actually can do there. So real estate, land development, there have been long uh, attempts at, at getting the tourism industry working in Palestine for, for obvious reasons, real estate and aid. And people like Masavi, what's the relation to the Israeli state uh, and the Israeli capitalist class? That's a really good question, and it's also really murky. It's hard to parse for the obvious reasons that it's not not a lot of it is very public, right? Somebody like Masavi is, is is rumored to long have good dealings with the Israelis that that kind of allow him to uh, to sort of move through the morass of approvals and stuff like that. And also in Israel, there's a uh, you know, there's a there's a liberal class that is is looking to things like the lobby as political and economic development plans that ameliorate the problems of occupation, stabilize the political and economic situation there, and so on. It is hard to parse because people are secretive about it. People don't want to be seen as accommodationist or working that closely with Israel. But I mean, realistically, anything that needs to happen at scale in, in the West Bank has to go through Israel. And then what about their relations with international organizations, the aid establishment and the UN and such? Rawabi in particular? Yeah, he and his class. They also have sort of close relationships with the international aid organizations. I think it's worthwhile to sort of to scale outwards from, from specific people like him, because what's happening through the, the so-called state building project or state and economy building project, whatever, is that they are establishing new sort of directions that aid can travel, Right. So one of the things that I, I talk about is how the state building project in the PA in the Palestinian Authority has created a thing called the Municipal Development Lending Fund, where basically aid is, is sort of redirected through the PA to the private sector. So no longer do you see um, much emphasis on big infrastructural projects, roads, buildings, stuff like that, and more towards entrepreneurship or infrastructure that aids stuff like real estate development. So one of the, the things about Rawabi in particular is that they have oriented a lot of aid funding towards their own offsite infrastructure. They sort of make arguments at different times about what counts as offsite infrastructure to try to get public support, which in the case of Palestine is also aid support. So, so I think that you can see the new logics of development aid towards privatization are sort of touch the ground in places like Rawabi. And, and that's why it's interesting, right? Because it's a place where you can see all these changes. So how does planning work? In Palestine, in from what I know in the U.S., for example, land use planning, which is very cl- closely tied to the real estate industry, is a project of local governments, state governments, regional authorities and such. There is no real Palestinian state. There is the Palestinian Authority. But how does it work in an area over which an external power has the last word in control? It's an enormous mess, right? And I think that this, this relates to your earlier question which is that, you know, about the relationship with, with the Israelis or the, the sort of international aid scaffolding of the, of the situation, which is that the planning, it's very difficult to do. And I think that, again, one of the things that's interesting about this housing development is that it, it shows just how opaque it is and how it can be oriented through capital and, and investment. There are sort of pre-existing uh, legal regimes governing planning that have changed over time and I think are continuing to change through large-scale housing development. Now, in, in the PA itself, there are sort of multiple kinds of planning. There's there's national-scale planning, which is essentially like, at one point was, you know, territorial planning, physical planning that strove to try to, to orient Palestine towards sovereignty, let's say. It became uh, much more aligned with, with 
the kind of the development apparatus when it started to look like these kind of aspirational plans about state building, but also about economic development and things like that. There's not a lot of detail in these plans. It's about aspiration and they're, they're kind of like reports to, to donors. Those things move around, those documents and those ideas move around and they become sort of ways to orient government activity and funding, to extract funding from international aid organizations, um, but also to sort of like create the legal basis for stuff like housing development. How does planning work? It depends on what you're trying to plan, you know? So if you're an enormous real estate company that wants to do a real estate development with support of the PA at the highest levels and the ability to create precedent and change law around it, then I think planning works by doing what you want to do. If you are a homeowner who wants to try to build something, uh, it's obviously much more difficult to do. The idea uh, behind Rawabi, I mean, aside, obviously the developer wanted to make money on it, but was there some sort of national uh, or collective aspiration, um, either uh, at its root or invoked in its promotion? Uh, how does it relate to a larger Palestinian project? The answer is 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 yes. I mean, I I, I remember going to the uh, the Palestinian Investors Conference. I went to the second Palestinian Investors Conference, and I was one of not very many non-development people there. And I was really struck by the language that they were using. And so all, all over the place, people were talking about this sort of potential, potential to make money, the potential for returns, which was something that I heard a bunch of times, right? And I think that, that you know, that's a, a use of that language that's different from what most Palestinians are accustomed to hearing. So I think that the, the, this is logically coherent for, for Palestinian capitalists, right? they believe that they're doing their national politics through the thing that's available to them. And if they benefit from it, all the better for it. It's worthwhile not to sort of just assume that there's cynicism there or something, because I think they do believe in what they're doing as a national project, right? Like, the, you know, we are the sort of national bourgeoisie is, is, is kind of the position. And, and as far as the, the sort of the, the rhetoric and the language of the thing is concerned, it's all over the place. I mean, it changes at different times, but they say, you know, this is a, a project for the future of the nation. This is about sort of stability and a kind of orientation towards the future in which the occupation is maybe not relevant, maybe not visible. Their ideas about the need for Palestinians to sort of craft stable lives and lifestyles. And, and so I think that the, the idea of this being a national project is all over it. Now, a different way that it's, it's part of the national project is, is related to the, the planning because the scale of the lobby meant that it, it sort of it, it counted or, or was classified as a national project. And so a lot of, it seems to me, the energy or the authority of the government ended up aiding it through planning, through changes in land tenure, through eminent domain, things like that. So there are a bunch of ways that it, it counts as as national for the people participating in it. I think also for people who want to live there, a lot of them do find the idea of living in a place where, uh, you know, their lives can be stable to be appealing, right? Normalcy, a kind of orientation away from the occupation is appealing to people. The ideas of, of national politics or national orientation are there. Now, the thing that's that's sort of, controversial about it is that it, it is sort of explicitly 
not about national struggle, not about ending the occupation, and so on. I'm speaking with Kareem Rabi, anthropologist and author of Palestine is Throwing a Party and the Whole World is Invited, just published by Duke University Press. Now, who is meant to live there? Is there like a middle class that can, a substantial middle class that can afford mortgages and that kind of life in a planned community? I mean, that's the huge question. From the beginning, the idea and part of how it was conceived of as a national project was that it would be affordable, the county's affordable housing. Now, the projections and the apartment prices continued to go up, and it's not really clear. So there's there's a couple of answers. The first is that there is a sort of like middle-class professional population with jobs in the PA, let's say, who can afford mortgages or can potentially afford mortgages and might be the consumer base for it. Another thing is that through new forms of mortgage financing, they're kind of trying to engineer the, the middle-class population in which they would like to live there. But I mean, there, there are problems with it. I think there are probably sort of problems that are consistent across endeavors like this that exist there. But also uh, the Palestinian context itself makes it difficult for people to try to tie themselves to 30-year loans, things like that. Uh, and, and it's not clear who will fill this thing up. So one of the things that I tracked when I was studying it was who they wanted to live there. And for a long time, they were saying that they they were only going to try to accept people who were already living in, in the West Bank or inside because they didn't want it to be a bedroom community of sort of diaspora Palestinians or, or people who are only there half time or only there in the summer or something like that. But I, I think that that has been changing recently just because they're finding it difficult to fill. And how does Robbie compare with Ramallah, which um, you know, physically, socially, symbolically, which as he writes several times, is, sometimes it seems like uh, Palestinian life is collapsing into Ramallah. What, what do you mean by that? And then how does Rawabi compare with it? Ramallah is interesting because it's it's one of the the, the few places I think where where kind of a, a, a somewhat normal Palestinian life is permissible, right? It's one of the few places where you know there's not sort of constant Israeli intervention. It's where capital investment is happening. It's where international people live. It's where there's kind of a middle class and upwards population, a service sector, stuff like that, large service sector. So how it compares is that Ramallah is also sort of like one of, I mean, as far as the, the, the rhetoric or the logics of the real estate company are concerned, like Ramallah is kind of chaotic. There's no good planning, no good zoning, things like that. And they're presenting themselves as a, as a place that's close to it and related to it, but different, secure, stable, quiet, things like that. Now, I, I, I guess one of the things that I, I sort of meant when I said that when I talk about like collapsing into Ramallah is that I think that the sort of relative stability and security in Ramallah is the, and subsequently in, in a place like the lobby, should it sort of take off, is the flip side of what's happening elsewhere. You know, like the reason that it, it, it exists the way it does is, is because, you know, life is difficult and bleak for Palestinians in so many other places. It's what allows what's going on in, in Jerusalem to happen right now. It's, it's what allows there to be dispossession and, and, and difficulty in, in other parts of the West Bank is that, you know, Ramallah is the place where people can go where that's sort of less a part of everyday life. Has Rawabi 
achieved any status in the Palestinian collective imagination as a inspiration or a sense of developing a future? Or um, is it just a real estate development? I don't know the answer to that question, because I think that it has it has developed a place in the collective imagination because it's famous, right? Everybody knows about this thing. Everybody talks about it. Everybody has some critique. And placing the collective imagination as far as as far as like the future is, is concerned, I would say maybe maybe not, maybe not yet. But it's it's presenting itself as a potential for that. I think for I think there is a class of people, there is a class of potential buyers for whom it is it is an inspiration. And I think that like the tying that to the kind of structural changes that it's it's sort of enabling makes it possible for it for it to exist as as some kind of a future future orientation or know, inspiration seems a little bit strong. The flip side is that it's also hugely controversial. Everybody has an opinion about it. Everybody knows what it is. So I, I think again it's a site where you can see the the changes and the potential changes in, in Palestine, the direction that it's moving through sort of economic stabilization. But I don't, I don't really think that it's it's a done deal, at least not at the level of political inspiration or, um, or yeah, co- collective identity, something like that. You quote some critiques that uh, some Palestinians view it as mimicking Israeli settlements in both spirit and appearance. Yeah, that's one of the, the predominant critiques of it. I think those critiques are right and wrong. I mean, I think that they're right in some ways, which is, you know, the, there's the logic of, of building as, as land defense there. It's sort of, it's, it's has a, a particular kind of vernacular that, that reminds people of, of settlements. But I think the, 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 the real critique of the place is about how it's changing political orientation and aid orientation at the level of the state or state scale body in the West Bank. So, you know, changing, changing the structure of, of land holding, uh, making eminent domain possible, making mortgages possible. Those are the things that interest me about it, about, um, about the changes that it's, it's creating. But yeah, I mean, there's, there, there, are, there are a lot of critiques of it. Those critiques are right because it does really clash with the image that we're accustomed to seeing of Palestine, right? Or that, you know, one of the, one of the difficulties of talking about this project for me personally right now is that it, it, it clashes very significantly with the, the images of what we're seeing in Jerusalem, right? So I, I mean, I have all these arguments about how accounts of Palestine sort of focus on the, the binary between resistance and occupation and, you know, miss things like this that are a sort of stabilization that, it, that occurs at a different kind of a scale. But I mean, what, what's happening right now, the big, the big story right now is occupation and violence and resistance. Adding something like this to that equation helps to understand how it's sort of spread out, how it's kind of amortized over the entirety of historic Palestine. But yeah, I mean, it does it does clash very significantly with what we are, what we're accustomed to seeing, what we're seeing right now. And I think a lot of what we as Palestinians are are sort of used to as part of um, uh, used to as as what resistance looks like, what resistance. And how did the Israeli government and uh, the settlers react to this development? There is definitely support within the liberals in Israel, uh, liberals in the Israeli government uh, and and sort of Israeli bourgeoisie who love this kind of like economic peace initiative. Now, the settlers are a different story, of course. There's a settlement uh, just just adjacent to it, a settlement called Ateret, 
who from the beginning had been protesting it. Uh, they've been sort of walking, walking down the hill and having demonstrations. They set up a, a website um, and they, uh, a website that sort of mimicked, mimicked the look of the Lobby website and said like, uh, you know, was about sort of how threatening it was, how dangerous it was to Israel and Israelis and, and stuff like that. And they also, they also sued. They sued the Wadi for various, various infractions, kind of like nuisance lawsuits, things about construction materials, stuff like that. So there's, they're, they, they reacted very negatively. And I think it's, it's part of the sort of wider logics of some of the project where they can't see any Palestinian building or existence uh, without, without wanting to uh, eradicate. And finally, um, what, does this say about uh, the uh, aspirations for a Palestinian state? Has that project now been left behind in the rush to do business? I think that this is the state building project. It's, it's about sort of like economic stability and security. It's an elite project to, you know, sort of build up a Palestine as a place in which the sort of relationships to Israel are subordinate and stable. At the level of, of the PA and the, their relationship to real estate developers, I think that this is the state project. Has it been left behind? I mean, I don't think that a sort of like territorial, sovereign, let alone contiguous Palestinian state is, is really in the cards. And I think that, that part, of, part of the reason is because the, the kind of the government's attention has been focused towards this kind of stabilization. So I think that I think that this is the state project. This is the, what the state building project does. Now, whether or not it succeeds, I, I don't know. I mean, that that's sort of related to the, the what I'm sort of swimming around about the, the Jerusalem stuff is that is that this might be a moment when all that investment in this kind of stabilization, those those investments might fail now. It sort of remains to be seen. And I think in the you know in the coming months, I think we will either see a renewed and unified Palestinian struggle and resistance, uh, of which there are there are indications, right? There are, there are hopeful indications. There have been uh, more demonstrations in Ramallah and the West Bank in the in the last few weeks, or we will see sort of more more money sort of pushed into projects like this as mechanisms for stabilization. Has the state project or like a, a national liberation through state project been left behind? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's that's what this is, and I think that. Something like real estate development at scale, and what we're, we've been seeing in, in Palestine and Jerusalem in particular in the last few weeks, shows that you know, the, the, as if we didn't know already, the PA is, is maybe not really the place to look for national liberation. I was Kareem Rabi, assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Illinois Chicago, and author of "Palestine is Throwing a Party and the Whole World is Invited: Capital and State Building in the West Bank," just out from Duke University Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Neon Licht, Neon Light in English, by Kraftwerk, speaking of urban development. Till next week, bye.